Welcome to another episode of the Green Minds podcast. My name is Desiree, and today's episode is part of a two-part series on the mining industry. Today, I speak with Kike Morales and Josh Goldman, an alumnus of Imperial College, about mining critical minerals to fuel the energy transition. In this conversation, we focus on exploration and discovery innovation to boost the output needed to fill the demand and supply gap, while Kike and Josh also both share their experiences and insights working in this field by Josh founding Cobalt, an exploration startup, and Kike working in deep tech venture capital at Starlight Ventures. Let's dive in. Thank you so much for taking the time today to be here with me, Josh and Kike. To kick things off, can you firstly describe your paths to date and how your interest in deep science, quantum physics, and mining came about? Josh, why don't you start? Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I did my I did my PhD in, in quantum computing. I was interested in questions of fundamental physics and innovation in the microscopic world. And uh, but ultimately I wanted to work on scientific problems that had a very immediate social impact. And the time scale for a lot of scientific impact is very long. But in energy and energy technology, there are problems that are really important to society right now where science has a really important role to play. And, and so I wanted to focus on the energy system and the, the energy businesses. I wanted to get to know the incumbent industries really well. So I went and worked with electric power companies. I worked with oil and gas companies. As a consultant, I worked with the designers of wind turbines and subsea power equipment, as subsea oil and gas equipment, and large power transformers. And then I I wanted to work as as an operator. I wanted to be the one making decisions and and worked for a little while in private equity investment in oil and gas, where I saw both a lot of opportunities to use data more effectively, even in a even in a relatively more advanced natural resource industry. But with my co-founders, after working in oil and gas for a little while, for one, we just wanted to work urgently on the energy transition. Uh, there, yes, there's there's important roles still to play for for fossil fuels in the short term and for gas as a as a bridge fuel for some while. But I and we wanted to be working really urgently on problems that would lead us to a very low carbon economy globally. And we started thinking about the natural resources that would be required to affect the energy transition, uh, with a focus initially on electric vehicles, and it became very clear that there's an enormous need for growth in very critical materials to enable us to have an, a global electric vehicle fleet. And that's only one of the many solutions that we need to transition the whole global economy to a lower carbon economy. I think mine is a little bit of a, you know, twists and turns, I guess. I also started out like Josh, uh, funnily enough, also in quantum physics, although I did not complete the, the um, like the PhD. Uh, I, I realized that I think a similar, a very similar realization, the timeline for impact in science can be very, very long and you can spend like large amounts of time for nothing to move the, the needle really. And so for me, it was also a decision on, you know, I'm going to be just older, but with the same itch about making a, making a difference. So I, I left to, to become a consultant 
to kind of learn more about the what I like to call the real world. And and you know, I was I realized that these more, I guess, traditional physical industries like mining, oil and gas, agriculture, uh, were my favorite and like by far. So I did a lot of private equity and strategy work uh, back at McKinsey. And when doing my MBA, I met the the founder of Starlet Ventures, Matthias. I, I kind of fell in love immediately with, with the idea, you know, of being able to still recover that scientific side to what I do and nerd out on the details, but to do so from a, from a financial and strategic perspective that in the end, everything's about, hey, can we decouple economic growth from destroying the planet? Like, is that a thing? And kind of how do we give capital to the, to the founders that can make that happen? And that was, I guess, my story to, <laughs> to get here. In your introductions, you all mentioned that mining is a crucial field in the transition to a net zero economy, despite it being a field that really traditionally has been lacking in innovation, has a really large environmental footprint, and also has witnessed many geopolitical scandals. Given this backdrop, why should we be focusing on mining now? And why should investors, entrepreneurs, and scientists be focusing on new ways to actually recover some of these minerals stored in the earth? This is an incredibly important question. So maybe we can take a step back from mining, which is how we get some of these minerals, but what minerals do we need and why do we need them? So there are many things we need to do to, to reduce carbon emissions. And one of those things that we need to do is stop burning fossil fuels for personal transportation. We have the technology to do that. Electric vehicles are, are now widely available. To get to a global fleet of electric vehicles, we just have to have the materials to build those vehicles. Well, what materials do we actually need? Well, if you want a battery that you can pick up and move around, which means it has high energy density, then you need lithium. That's why you have a lithium ion battery in your phone and your laptop and your electric vehicle. That's going to be the winning technology for a very long time. So we need a lot of lithium. <laughs> then if you, to have the, the cathodes for those batteries, the best cathodes are made out of cobalt. And to the extent that cobalt is scarce, then we need nickel. And then to have electrical anything, whether it's the electrical motors in, in the vehicle or the electrical blasts in the vehicle or the, or the generators in the wind turbine, we need a lot of copper. And these are the materials we need because we have the periodic table we have. There are other electrically conductive materials. We know what they are. The best conductor is silver. We're not going to replace copper with silver. And there's, there's a reason that we use these materials and we have, we have the endowment that we have in the periodic table. We've looked at all the, the material, the different elements and the combinations of them. So if we want to build, if we want to build a low carbon economy, we need the materials to build the physical things that are the build, building blocks of that economy. And, and we need more of them in, than we have today. And we, in our own models for our market forecast, we assume a hundred percent recycling of all of those metals. And it's in practice, obviously it's less than that, both for chemical reasons in recovery and for practical reasons that you don't get every, every atom that, that ends its life as something else. But as a, as a ceiling or as, as a floor on what we're going to need, even if we have hundred percent recycling, we just don't have those materials in stock today. 
there's no source of lithium from which you can go recycle a lot of lithium and make new batteries. There will be those sources in 30 years when we have a global fleet of electric vehicles. We won't need to mine new lithium anymore. We will be able to recycle the batteries that are that we have from cars ending their service life, and then we can make new batteries out of them. And we'll need very small increments of new lithium. In order to have a circular economy, we have to have enough materials in circulation in the first place. And for these, these four materials in particular, we need a significant increase in the stock of those materials in circulation in the economy in order to build the global fleet of electric vehicles. And so that's what's really important. So the question is, where are those materials going to come from? Physically, they're in the ground right now. They're in rocks. And specifically, they're in particular minerals in rocks. And we have to go find the places where they are highly concentrated by natural processes so that with industrial processes, we can get the rest of the way to metals and turn them into batteries. And the problem is that, it's, first of all, the scale of the problem is just enormous. With For those four metals, our view is that the supply gap to get to 100% electric vehicles by mid-century is $15 trillion worth of those metals. The scale of the problem is gigantic. And it's not like we just know where they are. We know where the right rocks are, and it's just a matter of digging them. We don't know where they are. We have to go find them. And that is the core scientific challenge. It's where are where are those ore deposits under the surface of the earth that have those critical materials? And how can we find them fast enough so that we can accelerate the transition to a low carbon economy? It's not helpful if we get to 100% electric vehicles in 2150. We need to get to 100% electric vehicles by mid-century of this year. The problem is urgent and we have to get on with it. And that's that means we have to solve a really hard scientific problem and we have to solve it fast. I, I fully agree. I think George has raised uh, several great points. There, there's one that I would make in terms of, you know, mining. It's one of these things that we don't think about on a daily basis, but like to make our infrastructure and our buildings, we need concrete. For that, we have to mine limestone. Uh, for that concrete, we need steel rebar, which we have to mine. We need for the industrial machinery, for the cars, for planes, you know, you need steel, aluminum, metals, all of that also has to be mined. And even like just to extract the fossil fuels that we use today, we need machinery for which we have had to mine the tools first. Like in that sense, mining sits at the center of, of civilization and in general, like it tends to have a large environmental impact. So just to transition away from those fossil from fossil fuels is you know harder than we think in more than one way. Like we've gotten very, very good at extracting those fossil fuels, doing so very, very cheaply. And you know, it's quite convenient to have cheap on-demand energy just by throwing this stuff in a furnace. So in that sense, everything else that substitutes these things. Silicon for solar panels, uranium one of the efficient, rare earths for wind turbines, magnets. Like in the end, everything will trace back to mining and to the problems that Josh was mentioning. Like, how do we find them? Where are they in sufficiently high concentrations? How do we mine them cheaply enough, cleanly enough? Can we recycle these things? And and so it's a it's a huge problem because most of the decarbonization can be traced back to mining problems. Like where do we find the materials we need? How do we, and how do we make it happen? Okay, you, you, you raised such an important point, which is where do materials come from? 
all things. Just look around you in your office, in whatever building you're sitting in, in whatever, you know, whatever car you're driving, the road you're driving on, every building you can see, every object, where, where did the materials come from? And essentially it either comes from a plant or a rock, <laughs> right? So, and if it's a plant, it's an agricultural product. So all the food you eat and the clothes you wear, those are basically agricultural products. Everything else comes from a rock. And that's that's it. And so that that includes petroleum-based products that like plastics, and that includes you know lots of chemicals that you use for everything. But any kind of physical chunk of stuff has come from one of those two places. And so that it, that's just a need. And if we if we have if we have stuff that's different than the stuff that's already you know that's already around us, or if, sorry, if we if we need things, if we need materials that are different than what we can already get from recycling objects that we already have, then that means either growing them or mining them. And that's where the materials are going to come from. How we do that and where we do it are enormously important questions. And the, the impacts that PK points to are at very much at the forefront of our minds. But if we want things, whatever the things are, wind turbines or what have you, we have to make them out of something. And the something is materials that come from the earth. Sorry, I, I like to, you know, when people say that software is eating the world and, you know, I'm, there's no doubt that electrons are very important in today's world, but the reality is that atoms come first. Like we need things to do anything. And that's also what, uh, I guess, makes the mining uh, problem so exciting from a, you know, from a founder and also from a VC perspective. Definitely. And thanks so much for this context, both uh, really great to contextualize and center the mining and materials industry within the global economy. And obviously, as you know, there are loads of challenges in the mining value chain. For this podcast, we won't go into every step of the value chain and the challenges in each, uh, each step for time's sake. But I really want to focus on one very important and large one, which is exploration, since this stage has a quite low success rate of about 4%. And given your expertise, I would really love to hear your perspectives on how the mineral exploration process traditionally has functioned and what challenges exploration is, is currently facing now and has faced over the past couple of years. I, if, if I can say one thing, there's a, perhaps I would describe in like one second what the value chain looks like because there's is the mining exploration, uh, you know, it's a bit of an interesting business. It, remarkably similar in many senses to the startup world in the sense that you basically have a small company with some capital trying to find an ore body that you know that it's worth developing and that it's worth for a mining major like the big players that you know real team these these types of players that we always hear about to develop and exploit and and in that sense, you know, you don't know if you're going to find something. And many junior miners don't find anything. So it really is a big, really is a big issue to making exploration better. It means, you know, better capital deployment, more efficient. And of course, it means the entire industry getting access to the resources that we need. And so I know that Josh is much, much deeper than I am on on the technicalities here, but uh, it's obvious that anything that we can do, be it via better sensing, AI, even drilling, like 
anything that we can do to increase that percentage is incredibly important. The perfect prompt, Kike. That, that's exactly why we started Cobalt. So Cobalt Metals, we are an exploration company innovating in exploration methods. And our goal is to make many discoveries of ore deposits that have the critical materials and to dramatically increase success rates in exploration. And we do that through using and inventing the best technology and using a whole range of quantitative methods, including machine learning, to make predictions, make improved exploration decisions. And we are an exploration company. We are out there running exploration programs on our projects. Our geologists are out, are, are out running exploration programs and our data scientists are making predictions that guide exploration decisions that we are making. Our software engineers are building a technology platform that all of these models run on and that make all the data available to our scientists. And ultimately, we are making investments in exploration. We are allocating capital to exploration programs. And, and we have a, a global portfolio of exploration projects across three continents. Because you're, you're exactly right. Most projects still won't succeed, even, even with a dramatic increase in, in exploration success. And being, being really disciplined in how we allocate capital and putting, putting the investment into the best opportunities is going to give us the best chance of success. And using our technology to make each of the decisions along the along the chain, even just within exploration, that's as as you're describing, Kika, that the value chain, the the vast majority of the value gets created in exploration. That's where you go from having ram pasture to an incredibly valuable ore deposit still in the ground, and then actually harvesting that value through through developing the resource. Uh, ultimately, that's. You know that's that's an exercise in in capturing the value and not and and not leaking out the value. There are there are places to increase the value of a, of an ore deposit when it's still in in production, of course, many ways. But going from something of no ostensible value to really dramatic ostensible value, that's the that's the possibility of exploration. And the so the the unit economics of discovery are extraordinary. And the problem in the industry is that the success rate is just too low. And that means that we just don't have the discoveries that we need to fill the supply gap. And it also means that the exploration business doesn't attract enough, enough capital and enough of the right capital to be able to fuel the discovery engine because it's not, you know, exploration writ large is not a good enough investment. So the, you know, the, the goal here is to dramatically change the standard of practice in exploration. And the reason is you're, you know, as you're pointing to Desi of why the, why exploration success rates are too low it's well, first the context is not only are they low, but it's that the situation is actually getting much worse. Compared to 30 years ago, the industry spends three times as much every year on base metal exploration and makes 60% fewer discoveries. So that's an eightfold decrease in discoveries per dollar of exploration expenditure in the span of a generation. And there's really two reasons for that. The first one is that the low hanging fruit is getting picked. And what do we mean by low-hanging fruit? We mean ore deposits that are easy to detect from the surface. In the first instance, that can be ore deposits that are outcropping, uh, meaning you can actually see the ore minerals at the surface with your eyes, or they're under they're under thin cover essentially. They're covered by soils, and you can you can sample the soils and find an ore, ore deposit underneath, for example. And in the places in in the in the districts where ore deposits are known to occur the easy to find things have largely been discovered. 
So that's the that's the first problem. And the the, the good news is that that isn't the global endowment of ore deposits. That's the global endowment of easy to find ore deposits. We know how they form. We know that the physical and chemical processes that lead to ore formation of different types of ore deposits. And the, the ones that we need that have that have lithium, that have nickel and cobalt and copper, they form kilometers deep in the subsurface. And there's only a few that we that we see at the surface because tectonic processes lifted them up and erosional processes scraped away all of the overlying rocks. And so we just happen to we happen to see them because they're they're conveniently located to where we live. But there are many, many, many more ore deposits. The vast majority of great ore bodies had remained to be discovered. And so it's it's all about how well we can find them. And the second reason for the, the low success and declining effectiveness of exploration is that innovation in the exploration business just has not kept up with the increase in difficulty. And that's that's what Cobalt is here for. Uh, there's, there's not enough of that innovation happening and we need new thinking and we need big investments behind that new thinking. And there's, there's enormous potential to improve the way that we can conduct exploration. And that's, that's what we're investing in. Josh, I'd love to get some clarity on what part of the value chain Cobalt Metals focuses on and what technology or data sources you all are actually using to decide which areas yield the best results and opportunities for exploration. So could you just briefly describe Cobalt's focus? Of course. So we focus we focus on ex, on exploration but with projects within the different stages of exploration. So we have everything from really greenfield opportunities where we have new ideas about that don't even host any ore deposits that we know of, where we think there's a lot of potential. And then we go stake a claim or apply for a new license, and we start exploring from grassroots with sampling on the surface, with flying airborne surveys to collect properties about the, uh, collect data about the physical properties of the rock. A gravity survey will tell you about the density of the rocks under the ground. And magnetic survey will tell you about the magnetic properties. An electromagnetic survey will tell you about the conductivity of the rocks and will task satellites to get high resolution imagery. These are the standard methods of exploration. These are these are not for the for the most part, these are not methods that are unique to cobalt. What is unique is how we're making the decisions, what insights we're extracting from the data, and at each stage, what what kinds of predictions we're making and how we actually put those into practice making decisions. And we work across the exploration value chain to much more advanced projects as well, where a discovery has long since been made, and perhaps even there's a mine in operation, and there's an opportunity to significantly expand an existing resource. There have been a number of holes drilled in an ore body, and we think there's potential for much greater mineralization, or maybe the holes that have been drilled have found sub-economic mineralization. There's sort of you know, hints of ore here and there, but not a not a spatially continuous ore body that you could actually mine. And we see a lot of potential in those kinds of places. That's what I think you mean by brownfield is where there's been a lot of activity already, and maybe even someone has already defined a mineral resource, but we see potential to Im improve the confidence of that resource to the point where you could actually invest in developing a mine. And, or where there's a significant expansion potential and there could be an extension of the mineralization or another lobe of it entirely, and that could dramatic, dramatically change a project. 
you know, ultimately the goal for us is we need to make discoveries of resources that are economic and get produced. It's we're not interested in geologic curiosities. We're interested in projects that have great geology and a great operating environment so that we can actually turn them into a sustainably operated mine where the materials actually get turned into batteries. Like that's what that's what we need. That's the ultimate impact and that's how we measure ourselves and so that's that that is the goal that that we're looking for in all of our projects. Thanks for this Josh. Could you also potentially describe how you're partnering with other companies in the industry? I know you're already working with BHP, Rio Tinto, and so I'd love to learn more about your reasoning to partner with these companies to really scale your operations globally. They're largely with other exploration companies, and they're with exploration companies that range from the very largest, like Rio Tinto and BHP you mentioned, are the largest mining companies in the world. Rio Tinto is also the largest explorer. And to much smaller companies, you know, publicly listed juniors are partners of ours, you know, individual, individual creative prospectors are, are partners of ours as well. And we want, we work with partners extensively because we want access to great properties and great data and great operating capabilities. We, we largely, you know, we largely operate projects ourselves, but, and so we, we focus more on the, on the, on the data and the, uh, and, and the properties themselves. And we're not, you know, we see potential in places where other people have done exploration and other people have licenses already. And the way in which we can work with them is we can, we, we can create more value out of the property than other people that they could work with. And so what we do is we go invest in exploration there. We will usually run the exploration program. We will apply our technology and invest capital alongside it. And we either will be will either be solely funding or we will be jointly funding with our partners. But our interests are aligned with them because we are investing capital in the project. And our goal is to make a discovery and we and our partners benefit from the discovery that we make. The other aspect for us is that working on many different projects is really good for building the overall technical system that makes every other project better. Each thing that we look at makes us smarter. And that's not just in a, you know, in a human sense of, of learning, but that's very much in a machine learning sense that there's a, you know, there are, there are bigger data sets and there's, there are specific lessons that we learn that are embedded in models that make predictions elsewhere more effective. And so there's this compounded benefit to working on a whole variety of projects in different domains. And the, you know, the, the COBOLD system and the COBOLD models become more and more effective with a wider range of things that we do. And that benefits all of our, that benefits all of our partners. There's, there's actually one, the many explorers have one or maybe, you know, two or three exploration projects going on. And so that means that if your success rate is so low, like your most likely outcomes, you won't find anything. And so in that sense, the having that diversification, like having access to several projects, several explorations, brownfield and greenfield, like all under the same roof. It's not, I mean, it's not only good for the AI tool and the decisions that you're making, it's also good from a from an economics perspective, because it also enables you to pull that risk. And you know, if you increase the, the odds of success significantly. Like you, 
can suddenly turn the equation into a, you know, I expect that my portfolio of projects will always have a positive expected value. And that is very powerful in an industry where this is not necessarily the case. Right. So for our, for us, the portfolio approach is totally necessary. And that's that was, you know, one of the many kind of founding concepts of the business. And for our, our small company partners, they go, the benefit for them is a dramatic increase in the chance that their project becomes really valuable. And because right, most projects, most projects fail. And so most, you know, most creative entrepreneurs will wind up with a zero on their investment. And if we can dramatically increase that success rate, it's fantastic. And for large companies, you know, large companies, well, one, they, they still have many more opportunities that they all have large portfolios and broader portfolios are fantastic, but there's just this clear sense of opportunity in the industry of using machine learning to improve exploration success rates. And where, you know, there are large company partners have internal initiatives as well, but there's such a strong sense of opportunity. And I think we're, we're doing things that I think are quite differentiated in the space and that there's, you know, there's appetite to work with us. And we're, we're very, very keen to work with, um, we're, we really value our large company partners. They're, they're sort of great, great technical collaborators. And we've generated a number of projects together and that, that model works really, really well. We do, we, you know, we need we need the overall industry to be more successful and our partnerships with our, our large industry partners are a really important part of that. There's also, I think, a lot of value to be created on that area where you've mentioned, you know, we do all of these gravimetric measurements, the magnetic measurements. And I think it's a very good thing for the exploration business that more venture money is flowing into sensing capabilities. Because there's also a lot that can be unlocked via, for example, better gravitometers, better magnetometers, or you know, better drilling. As I, as I mentioned before, like for example, one of our portfolio companies called Quays, they're working on a maser system designed to do like ultra deep geothermal energy. So it's not necessarily related to mining. But one of the cool things of what they're building is that the cost of drilling for them is linear instead of exponential, as it typically is. And so they could, for example, drill holes that are like one inch in diameter that very easily could reach one kilometer depth. And so if you need to prospect an old body, you can do it you know, in a much more granular, accessible way. If you have drilling technologies like that, like you can go much deeper and you can go and you can be much more flexible in how you choose to prospect when you start to suspect there may be something there. And those things will also help a lot generate better data for the kinds of, you know, AI and decision-making models that uh, companies like Cobalt are working on. It would fully agree with you. And this is, we are, we, we build our own software technology stack. We have, we have a small number of hardware projects and, but we are we are actively partnering with other technology companies as well and innovations as as Kike was describing in sensing technology in drilling technology they're both the they're both technologies that are on the frontier of what's possible in in geophysical detection and in, in spectral detection today and we are deploying or piloting these technologies on our projects quite extensively and then there are also things that we're importing from other industries that might be more commonplace in oil and gas, but relatively infrequently used in mineral exploration. And we're, you know, we're we're accelerating some of those changes. 
And so a kind of rapid experimentation of piloting some of these technologies and figuring out where we can get much more value out of these. There's, there's, there's a lot of exciting opportunities there. Is there a specific research gap upstream in the mining value chain that you really want to see more researchers and entrepreneurs focusing on? So essentially, what innovations do you want more people to be building? Is it sensing? Is it drilling? As you mentioned, what what exactly are you looking for? That is a very good question. I from a I guess from a venture capital perspective, the the most key thing here is we need to solve the problem, but we need to make sure that, especially if you intend for for that research to be uh, to become a company, like whatever it is that you're doing has to have uh, either a large enough obvious application or a large enough portfolio of applications that could sustain what you're doing. So in that sense, for example, drilling seems to me like an obvious improvement you could make. At the same time, you really need the mining industry to be interested and to be willing to bear with you on that process for drilling to be useful because it's not like you can apply drilling to, I don't know, data centers, like not really. However, other things like more on the sensing side of things could benefit from that cross-pollination of, look, I have a bare quantum gravitometer, for example. That may be useful for mining, but that may also be useful for other things, including things like you know defense. And so it's a little bit of having, I guess, research programs that understand the range of applications that, uh, that what you're doing could have and engaging everyone early enough in that spectrum of applications to make sure that you know, what you're doing has a counterpart on the other side that would be willing to pay for it and to bear with a timeline of you developing that, that technology. I mean, it's not it's not a coincidence that, that many people talk about the valley of death for scaling up of new technologies. It can be hard to, you know, sure, I can make this, I can drill better holes, but if it takes 10x more capital, maybe you won't find enough demand to go down the, the learning curve. So it's a tough, it's a tough proposition. You're, you've nailed it there. I think this is, this, this is related to the, you know, the decreasing discovery effectiveness in exploration, which is all about using the same methods for harder problems. And so we have ways of working in the industry that we have to get past. And that means spending more money on data. That means spending uh, spending money on different kinds of data than we might have collected before. Uh, you know, there are, you know, a great example we talk about internally all the time is that we, we take magnetic measurements quite frequently. And it's very, it's one of the relatively inexpensive things that you can do over a large area is you can, you can easily get a geophysical contractor with a magnetometer on a plane to go fly back and forth and lines over your property. We've, we've done this and we do other surveys where it's pretty easy to just have the mag on the mag data as well. Usually that's just measuring the scalar magnetic field, the magnitude of the magnetic field. Vector measurements would be much more valuable. And that's not a standard thing that you can get. It's very difficult to get a vector measurement of the, you know, the different direction, the three components of the magnetic field or the full tensor, including the gradients. That's a, that is a relatively infrequent thing to get. 
And that's it, 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 the, the uncertainty reduction. And we haven't talked much about uncertainty and Kobold's kind of technology and philosophy. We'll get to that, I'm sure, later in the conversation. But the amount of uncertainty that you can reduce by having those, you know, those extra degrees of freedom measured um, is extraordinary. And, and yet that's not a standard technology because there's something that's, you know, that's relatively cheap to collect that is relatively easy to interpret with conventional analytical methods. And so, you know, having lots and lots of rich data is, is great only in as much as you can extract any insight from it. Like the information is what we want, not just the data. One of the areas where there's been a lot of innovation, which, we, which we're really excited about, is in scanning of drill core. And when you when you drill, let's talk about what drilling is here for a minute. There are different. Essentially, it means poking a hole in the ground to get a sample of rock out of the ground. And the perhaps the most common type of drilling is, is so-called diamond core drilling, where you get a whole tube of rock out of the ground, and then you can look at the rock and you can see what the minerals look like with your eyes in situ, as opposed to other types that break up the rock as they drill. Um, and so once you get it out of the ground, then you can, you know, you can saw it in half and polish the sides. So you have a nice flat surface and there are, you know, probably at least 20 different companies out there that sell technology that will run various sensors over that core and get you imagery of different kinds, visible and hyperspectral and x-ray fluorescence and, and so on. And, and those, those, those technologies can generate, you know, gigabytes of data per meter of core and conventional methods of analysis where that that rely largely on visual inspection on kind of making maps that you can look at with your eyes of different kinds you can't process that much information that's high dimensional data there are you know hundreds of hundreds of features per pixel you can't we, we don't think in high dimensional spaces you have to use a totally different set of quantitative tools for using this information but you have to ask questions that are geologically relevant. And that's hard. That's 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 where we are in the industry right now, is we're just grappling with how to get to how to how to get insights and usefulness out of this huge volume of data that we can now generate. So that's why that's why we see this as incredibly opportunity rich and why we have, you know, the there are more data scientists than anybody else at Cobalt, because this these are the kinds of questions we're working on. But they have to, the data scientist's job is to make discoveries. It's not to do analysis. The data scientists are explorationists. That is their job. And so we have to be asking relevant questions. So you have this huge volume of data that, that you can generate, but that doesn't, you know, doesn't routinely produce great insights. Uh, and then you have, as Kike's talking about, this kind of low willingness to pay for premium data in the exploration industry. And that's a that's a big challenge for the developers of new technology. And uh, we are among potential customers, we're, we're eager and we're, we have high, high willingness to pay and high willingness to pilot new technologies. And because we, that's, you know, the, the company is founded on the thesis that that's a requirement for making discoveries, but the industry is in the process of its, of changing its mindset on all of those things. And so, uh, you know, I, I hope that the, the innovators on some of the technologies that Kike was talking about are going to be able to take advantage of that, that shift. And I hope it happens quickly enough because, you know, we we see one other companies. I, I think Cobalt is going to be the most successful explorer of the generation. Other companies also need to be great and successful explorers. Like we need more metals than Cobalt alone is going to find. And to have a great service industry of these, you know, these sensor, you know, geophysical services with new kinds of sensors and new drilling technologies and whatnot. It's good for those 
companies to have other customers besides Cobold so that we have a, you know, a robust innovation ecosystem in the industry. So we're, we're very much pushing this in this direction and, and we're seeing movement in the industry in this direction as well. The, the, the industry, I would expect to change the way it looks and have a much richer uh, ecosystem of players upstream than it had had, than it has had traditionally. I feel like as Justus mentioned, we're going to end up with a wider variety of measurements that you can take on different types of ore bodies, things that are more relevant for certain types of ores than for others. We're going to have to also have explorers who understand these differences and who have the, I guess, that, that combination of you know geology knowledge and data knowledge to then say, Okay, if I'm looking for this type of thing, this is the data that I need. These are the questions that I need to ask. And this is the type of analysis that can get me the, the answers I, I want. And kind of very similar to oil and gas in that sense. You know, these are traditional industries that we're talking about. These are industries that have been wildly successful on the back of you know smart people, tools, and kind of somewhat basic analysis. And, you know, it's going to take time for them to, I guess, come to the 21st century and see the value that is there to be created with all of this technology stack. Okay, so once you have successfully completed the exploration step, what needs to happen in the next step, which is discovery? So essentially, my question here is, what are the most important and foundational things that you need to have in this step to actually generate a fully operational mine? The next step from exploration is, is development. Say, okay, we found something. Now we have to turn a discovery into a mine. What's actually required in order to make that happen? The most, the, the most important, the foundational thing is you have to understand the mineral resource. You have to understand what the rocks are in the ground and what, you know, what minerals and, and what elements those rocks contain. This is going in the video. <laughs> you, can, you can edit out my cat asking to leave the office. So <laughs> I can repeat the sentence for you. So the foundational thing you have to understand is the is the mineral resource. What are the rocks? What what do they contain? What minerals do they contain? What's the concentration of the various chemical elements in those rocks? So then, but that's totally not enough. In, in order to get all the way to a mine, you have to have a plan for how you're going to get the rocks out of the ground and what mining method you're gonna use and whether the rocks are going to support that. I mean, you have to create cavities underground to take the rocks out and those cavities need to be supported and not collapse. And so the, the mechanical properties of the rocks matter a lot. Once you get them to the surface and then you have to, you have to figure out how you're going to get the metals out of the ore. And that means in the first instance, separating the, the different mineral grains, think of a slab of granite, right? You can see the different mineral grains the crushing or comminution process grinds it up until you actually physically separate the mineral grains. You use something, flotation is a common method of then of, of separating the different minerals. And then you do wet chemistry to break the chemical bonds in the minerals themselves to separate out the metals. And so you have to write down the plan for how you're all gonna do how you're gonna do this. And you have this problem that the you know rocks are incredibly heterogeneous. You can look at any slab of rock, look at any boulder, and you see lots of different stuff in it. 
when you look at an ore deposit, when you look at the whether it's a mine face or in a drill core, the variability is just incredible. And it's and it's happening on every length scale, at the millimeter scale, to the tens of centimeter scale, to the tens to hundreds of meter scales across the ore deposit. And so how you can ultimately have some confidence on a handful of economic parameters, what is it going to cost to build this thing? And what rate of return am I going to get on that capital investment? I, you have this enormous amount of uncertainty that you want to boil down to much narrower uncertainty that supports a billion dollar capital investment to build a mine. So there's so many problems of uncertainty reduction that you have to tackle in order to do that. And the way we think about this is making models about the, for the relevant parameters, whether that's the, you know, the grade of copper in the resource or the grindability of the rocks or the uh, or the acid consumption of the rocks or or what have you so we need we need to we need to model all of these things we need to predict them in the places where we don't have measurements we need to quantify the uncertainty in our predictions and then we need to collect data that narrows the uncertainty to acceptable levels and so that's the same thinking as the exploration as the earlier stages of the exploration process we we make a prediction we understand and quantify our uncertainty in our prediction, and we design a data collection program to reduce that uncertainty to some meaningful end. And so that, that's a very Bayesian way of thinking, and that is embedded in both the way that we approach exploration problems and in the technology itself. And we're applying both that technology and some of the underlying, underlying quantitative methods and that mode of thinking to these exploration problems all the way across the cycle from very greenfield opportunity to probabilistic geometallurgical modeling in a well-defined resource. I want to now take this conversation in a completely different direction and talk a little bit about some other new and different ways to actually boost output. I know Kiki and I previously talked about seabed mining and asteroid mining. Would love to hear both of your thoughts on these novel ways to boost output, and maybe we can also take a step back and consider the pros and cons of each process. Absolutely. Absolutely. So... I mean, I would say beyond what we've been discussing, like the, all of the data, the drilling, the uncertainty reduction, like if we if we want to boost production or let's say be able to boost consumption without boosting production, I would I would say there's three things we can do. I mean, I'm, I'm gonna have the, the asteroid one is a bonus, which is, you know, we, we need to recycle. We need to figure out what can we profitably extract from like brines or seawater type of resources? And lastly, we need to figure out if deep sea bed mining is a thing. In the end, clearly recycling is a big one and most likely the biggest one in most regards for many of the metals, like steel, aluminum, many of these things. And I mean, we do recycle a lot of aluminum already. Making sure we keep reusing them would go a long ways in alleviating the environmental pressure and the additional production we need. That doesn't mean that we can fully cover a green transition just by recycling. That is unfortunately not the case. And with things like copper, we already know that we have a massive gap in if we want to reach the, the commitments we've made. There's, of course, always the side route of trying to substitute some of these materials in one way or another. Like 
you know, alternatively, battery chemistries to reduce perhaps the need for cobalt versus one another material, new motor technologies that use no like no copper in the the so things like that. And of course, I'd be remiss not to mention our portfolio company, Simotive, which is working on exactly that. But in the end, like we need more stuff. Like this is a fact that we cannot escape. And the earth, luckily for us, has more than enough of everything we need. So I do think that the brines and seawater will be useful. I mean, it's a, the, the brine and seawater one is already the key source for things like lithium in most cases. There's also lithium that can be drilled from, you know, that can be recovered from ores. But a lot of lithium is coming and will come from brines type of operations. I think there's more stuff that we can get out of there profitably. And then the, the other one is deep seabed mining, which we can discuss in in more detail, but I think at least for you know for our for the audience, I think it's useful to explain that deep seabed mining is it's a bit of a controversial thing. There's several ways in which you can do that. The easiest one of which is recovering like rocks that are deep in the seabed in a in some particular areas of the ocean, in which the rocks are used laying there, and the rocks are very rich in iron, cobalt, uh, copper, like some of these key minerals. And then there's other things you can do in the seafloor, but that are much more like uh, traditional mining. You're just doing it underwater. Like you, you, you do need to drill, you do need to create a big operation there. And I think that is a much harder proposition from an environmental perspective, knowing you know what we know about what drilling on the surface is like. Like it's hard to predict what we're gonna do if we start drilling very aggressively in the seafloor. The other one, the recovering the nodules is I think where most of the controversy uh, has been directed originally. And, and it is there where I think the more nuanced uh, conversation like is more warranted. Like, you know, if we do it right, it's a very easy resource in terms of recovering it. You just have to go down there and pick it up, which of course simplifies a lot the details of actually going several kilometers in depth and getting things out of the seafloor. But here is where the traditional approach to getting things out of the seafloor, dredging, you know, it's being done in more shallow waters. And if you're dredging the seafloor, like you're creating a big impact, like you're stirring up vast amounts of sediment, like you're creating uh, that will travel around, like it's hard to predict what's going to happen. And so and we need to have a serious conversation about how much environmental damage and of what kind is acceptable. Uh, you know, there's no such thing as no impact mine, whether it's on land and whether it's on, on the seafloor. And, you know, people like Professor Thomas Peacock at MIT have been researching what happens to all of this sediment that is stirred up uh, down there. I would say I'm a little bit skeptical on the dredging uh, approach. I feel like there's a lot of innovation going on in the space towards finding less harmful ways of of doing this because the, I mean, the standard has to be quite stringent. It's hard to know what's going to happen once you start steering massive amounts of sand in the seafloor, even if it's just like 1% of the seafloor. And so that innovation, I think, would be crucial to the viability of deep sea mining. And, and of course, we didn't, we invested in one company called Impossible Metals that, you know, is, is developing 
selectively harvesting technology so that you can collect the nodules like very carefully and trying to also keep the, the, the biodiversity that you have down there intact instead of you know just vacuuming up the, the seafloor. And so if things like impossible metals succeed, that may make the deep, uh, deep seabed mining uh, conversation a much more logical one. Like, hey, we have this easy resource, we can pick it up without destroying the planet. Why not? If not, I think it's going to be much harder to justify, uh, you know, destroying the seafloor and potentially affecting lots of uh, um, ecosystems versus, you know, doing more of the same on land. You build a build a supply curve for choose your metal, cobalt, nickel, and or what have you. Those are the subsea nodules are are very high in in cobalt and nickel and manganese. The uh, if you you know you look at how much is down there, enormous amounts. That's a very wide bar on the cost curve. And but you look at what the terrestrial resources are, and the the subsea resources are significantly more expensive to extract. Asteroid resources are even more expensive to extract. So yes, there's, you know, for all intents and purposes, infinite amounts of these metals elsewhere in the solar system or the universe. And the cost also goes to infinity as you as you go further and further away from the Earth's surface to go get them. And the cost goes high enough if you have to go miles under the ocean to pick these things up. But first of all, the endowment of terrestrial deposits is ought to be enough. Like we're it's it's a matter of finding them. If you can find an ore deposit that's a few hundred meters under the surface on land, and it's a good quality deposit, meaning that you know the grade of the metals is high, the concentration of the metals is high enough, that's always going to be a more economic deposit than something that's miles under the ocean and distributed out over at you know sort of low density over a very large area of seafloor. And and we have a a strong view that those terrestrial resources exist. And we obviously have founded the company on the thesis that we will be able to find them. And so I think that's yeah, that's to say, yeah, maybe we've we've depleted the the low-hanging fruit. The middle branches are going to provide enough for society and the low carbon economy that we don't have to get up to those super high branches. And I, I uh, that's that is aside from the environmental impacts, which are considerable because these are ecosystems that we don't really even understand. Definitely. And also super interesting to hear about the different branches, their costs to serve our mineral needs, and also their environmental considerations. I want to circle back to Kike's comment on new battery chemistries and compositions, since I want to talk about how they are shifting in the next couple of years, which is obviously going to cause the demand for certain minerals to change. So would love to hear both of your perspectives on how founders, investment professionals, companies, etc. should make sense of these new developments and how they can best prepare right now for what comes next in the future. I, I think it all comes back to market forces. Like if we have a, a well-known same infinite supply of cobalt, perhaps we wouldn't have started going back to chemistries like LFP. But in that sense, when you realize, hey, I depend on certain substances, these substances have more unpredictable costs or more unpredictable supplies, or I don't know where I'm going to get them, or I don't like where I'm getting them from, you start to have a market pressure 
to say, okay, can I do the same with something else? Can I do the same with less of this stuff? And those forces, I think, are the key drivers behind the changes in battery composition. There's for sure an argument that, you know, if you can improve performance, uh, that would be amazing. And for sure, if you're building a 10x better battery, please get in touch. But, uh, <laughs> you know, in the end, the batteries we have are quite good. Like reality is that, you know, we and we complain a lot about what we have. The reality is that the lithium ion battery is a very good battery and it can do a lot for, for us. You know, we, we may not have cracked the energy storage or seasons type of problem, but reality is that with costs coming down, lithium ion batteries are very, very competitive in many, many uh, areas. And I think the the overall lesson that I've taken from this from this space has also been that we're unlikely to see what you could call a winning chemistry, in the sense that I feel like different chemistries, different compositions, different types of batteries will find their ideal use cases. Like for example, maybe we will see flow batteries becoming more common on, uh, on grid scale applications or longer, slightly longer duration applications. Like maybe we'll see the vanadium or some of these new organic ones uh, lead that charge there. Maybe we won't like, but in the end, it all comes down to market pressures. Like, can I do the same thing for a lower cost? What is important in terms of battery performance for this use? Like, do I need it to charge super, super quickly? Or am I finding it takes 12 hours to, to charge? And all of that has implications for the trade-offs that you have to make in the in the composition. Yeah, there's there, there are many innovations happening in batteries, and it is I think it's important to cut through some of the noise on what the implications of those innovations are. For mobile batteries, nothing is threatening lithium-ion's dominance. Uh, not 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 close. And this that is in that there's very good chemical reasons for that. And when people talk about solid state batteries, there's still lithium ion batteries. There are innovations in the anode of the battery, like the silicon anode, for example. Well, that's still a lithium ion battery. You still need lithium. Uh, none of that goes away. So your mobile phone and your laptop and your electric vehicle in a decade are still going to have lithium ion batteries. And there, you will be hard pressed to find a credible observer who will say otherwise. Lots of innovation is happening within lithium-ion batteries, and that's that's great. That improves performance. There's there's like there's enormous potential there. There are large market markets for sure, and, and all the things Kike was talking about in terms of flow batteries and long duration storage. Those are for stationary batteries that you don't have to pick up and move around. That can be grid storage. That can be you know at any number of places in the electrical system, but not something that you have to pick up and move around. So we still need still need lithium. And enormous amounts of lithium, and there isn't like a reservoir of lithium around. And absolutely, there's been substitution in cathodes and LFP, that's lithium iron phosphate, that is that doesn't use cobalt and it doesn't use nickel, and and it makes a, a lower energy density battery. So you have less vehicle range or you have a heavier vehicle. And so the number of use cases that LFP satisfies has grown a lot. And so you see even premium brands like Tesla making batteries with LFP in some of their markets. So that's great. This is good that, that cobalt and, and nickel supply is not like a, a, a massive governor on EV deployment globally. Cobalt especially and cobalt nickel batteries still have better cathodes. And so the 
the, the number of use cases you can cover and the quality of vehicles is still better if we have more of those materials. And it's not all the, the work to engineer away cobalt is because of scarcity, not because of performance. And that uh, my co-founder with some collaborators at Stanford published a very nice paper on this in just a few months ago. And um, and, you know, and copper for electrical systems has not gone away. It has been <laughs> the sort of leading industrial electric, electrically conductive material for centuries. And, you know, that's, again, that's and the, the periodic table is not going to change. Like we, we need copper and, and that's, and we need, you know, an electrified economy has a demand for enormous amounts of additional copper besides the copper that's already in your walls and already in the power infrastructure that we have. So those are things we need. We're also going to need other materials. You know, if vanadium batteries are a winning technology for, you know, for stationary storage, yes, that's going to be, it's going to be another critical material that we have to worry about for sure. But it's not, it's not going to displace the needs for the ones that we're talking about. Awesome. I know we are running slightly short on time, but there are two other big topic areas that I want to touch on. One being geopolitical complexities and the important developments in the global arena on mineral supply and security. And then also the, the other area is talent, since I know that the mining industry is severely struggling with retaining talent and hiring new talent. So would love to hear your thoughts on this. I don't know if you want to start with one before we talk about the other. I mean, I'm sure Josh is biased, but like for the talent one, I, I, like <laughs> I would argue if you want to work on, you know, on climate within mining, you should be joining companies like Cobalt. I, you know, it, it would be responsible on my part to not say, you know, if you're listening to this and you want to pursue a climate-oriented career, like there's a lot of companies out there doing the work that you would be interested in doing. It doesn't really matter what your expertise is. You know, we have like 45 portfolio companies right now, all of them working, well, almost all of them working uh, in most of these problems. And, you know, they're there, they're hiring, uh, climate is hot. So if that's something you want to do, that's something that drives you, please get in touch with, with these companies. Like, uh, you know, Cobalt, of course, you know, we've we've had that conversation <laughs> for the past hour with, with Josh. So even though we're not, I mean, I'm not an investor in Cobalt, so it's not like I'm biased <laughs> here. You know, join join them. Like that's the type of thing we need. Join impossible metals, like join companies that are working things you believe in, because there's a lot of them out there and they need the best talent they can find. Exactly. <laughs> this is, you don't have to come from the mining industry. This is it's great. This is, I mean, the... Obviously, our, our geoscientists largely come from, you know, from the industry. Uh, our data scientists don't. Their data scientists are, you know, a lot of, you know, people like me, they have, uh, they have doctoral degrees in the physical sciences. And then, and then they went and worked in the tech industry as data scientists for a decade or more. And, and they like, it, ultimately, they want to work on climate problems and like and things that have a potential that have a really big impact. And, you know, we're, we're either going to find the metals or we're not going to have the vehicles. And that's, that's, that's what we need to have a global fleet of EVs. So that's the big motivating, big motivation for the majority of people at Cobalt. And then, you know, it's a fun and interesting scientific problem. Like it's, we're not, we're not working with user data. We're working with physical data about the earth. 
and we're trying to ask questions about the you know, about what's below the surface of the earth in places where we can't see it that's a really hard and 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 fulfilling scientific problem to work on where there's a lot of opportunity for innovation and discovery and there's a great opportunity for people to come from from outside the industry and bring their skills to bear to work on the problem so we have lots of people who were data scientists in ad tech and now they get to work on science problems with climate impact. It's great. There's lots of opportunities like this. I think Kike said, yes, come, come work for COBOL. This is exactly the kind of people we want. And we're we're pulling talent in from outside the industry. And it's a, it's a fantastic thing. And it's really important and necessary. Great. Um, thanks so much for this perspective. And yeah, go join COBOL. Last thing I want to briefly touch on is the geopolitical arena. So... Cobalt Metals just recently announced a, a $150 million investment in a copper deposit in Zambia. And then there's also, as you've seen with the recent passage of the IRA bill, which now demands that at least 40% of the value of EV batteries' critical minerals need to be extracted, recycled, or processed in the U.S. or a country that's party to a free trade agreement. And so... Obviously, as you know, this is super complex for a lot of different stakeholders, and there are even now deposits in certain countries that are really hard to get to and don't have, let's say, strong rule of law and ethics. And so reflecting on your experiences, how should anyone make sense of this complexity and the implications of, of this? There's, there's many elements of this. I think... And we have to think globally about where all these materials are going to come from. And we think about making investments, it's cobalt. We invest in places where we are confident that we can operate to a very high standard of ethics and business conduct. And that is a lot of the world, but it's not not all of the world. And we and, and that's very important. And so there's there's places where we hope the map of places that we can invest in expands over time. And a lot of that is beyond our control because we, you know, we need the the government is a partner in, in all of our projects because the, you know, the government controls the regulatory environment and the government controls the property itself. We operate on a mining license that is granted by the government with conditions set by the government. And so Good governance is critical for being able to make significant capital investments in countries. We also hope that the that the developing world plays a really large role in development of new resources as well. And there's a pretty mixed mixed bag among developed countries. The you know there are countries like Canada that have very well established frameworks for mining. And it varies province by province. You know, probably Quebec is a is a leading example of how to do responsible development. There's a lot of you know relative to many places, high degrees of trust between indigenous communities and and government, and that's a really important model. It, it it's both we both have great geology that has the potential to produce these resources and an environment where all the pieces come together, the regulatory environment and the First Nations and the residents of communities. Like you can't have a mine without all of these pieces. Like it has to, you have to, you know, you have to meet environmental standards. You have to have the support of the people who live there and the traditional owners of the land. You have to have a regulatory environment that is that is stable. And you have to have this in a place where you have these really unusual rocks. We have a number of those places in the United States as well. And we have, you know, the barriers to developing a new mineral resource in the U.S. are are high. 
And they're idiosyncratic. It's not the same in one place as it is in another. It's different states. It's different indigenous communities. It's different local environmental impacts. And so there are always objections to any particular development. And there are always valid objections to any particular development. There isn't, you know, there isn't, a, as, as Kike said earlier, there isn't a mine with no impact. And I think you know, we, we, we think about this as, as needing to be you know, very careful and responsible in any development that we undertake. And that needs, that starts with decisions at the very beginning about where even we're going to explore. And it starts with very early engagement with communities. And you, know, you have to build that foundation, otherwise there's nothing to do. And if you don't have that foundation, then we just shouldn't be investing. And, but I think that the, the sort of, you know, the broad public dialogue around this, you know, there's, there are sort of national policy incentives like you see in the IRA for, you know, for development of mineral resources in the United States. That's good. That's a very, those are strong incentives for sure. But the kind of local conversation around this, I, I, I you know, I, I think we have to improve the way that we approach these kinds of problems and balance these impacts. And, and because the, there is no single prescriptive solution, I'm, you know, we can't, you know, we, we, we need the environmental laws that we have. That's very important. And, and we, you know, the communities, communities have a say in what happens in their communities. Then none of those, none of those things ought to change. And, but we have to find a way through these that results in, in some resources getting produced somewhere and not just pushing all of this into the developing world, uh, which is what happens when we kind of stalemate ourselves on projects, you know, in, in other parts of the world. Yeah, I think Josh, you're, you're spot on, especially when, with that last comment, like in the end, it's always a tension between, you know, the impact that the mining activity will have and, and the need for the resource. And, and, and of course, we need to make sure that we mine with the highest possible environmental standards. We involve the local communities that we understand how we're gonna fix whatever we screw up while we're mining. Like, this is something that uh, it's a big part of mining, but at the same time, you know the the I guess the geopolitical forces that are pushing us to like all of these onshoring, nearshoring uh, tendencies, like this notion of a more multipolar world than we've had over the past 30, 40, 50 years, it confirms us with a big question. Like, are we willing to bear or innovate around the nasty environmental impacts that sometimes, and it's, sometimes it's not even the, the extraction of the resource. Sometimes what's really bad is not getting the ore from the ground, is recovering the actual pure metal from that ore later. And so we have been, you know, as developed nations, we have been pushing that to countries that didn't, didn't or couldn't care that much about their environment uh, in their own push to, to develop. And I think that we as developed nations, we're gonna have to have a little bit of a reckoning with how do we solve that stalemate that Josh was mentioning. We need we need the materials. We have to mine them from somewhere, and we are uh, so that we can mine whatever we want, wherever we want. We're constrained by the physical realities of the planet, and you know, and it's going to take a lot of I think public engagement and that reckoning to understand what is and what isn't acceptable.
And that concludes our episode on mining critical minerals. Thank you so much, Josh and Kike, for sharing your expertise and for the interesting discussion we had today. I'm sure our listeners enjoyed this nugget-filled episode just as much as I did. And for our listeners, if you have any suggestions on ways to improve this episode or other episodes in the past, or even any questions about the discussed topics, drop me a note on the email linked in the description below. Until next time.